A couple of weeks ago, I got one of Dixie Douglas's delightful little love notes. I'm sure that uh, many of you have been recipients of her uh, notes from time to time, and I thought I would read this one because it's so appropriate. She says, I can live with my arthritis, and my dentures fit me fine. I'm accustomed to bifocals, but I really miss my mind. <laughs> and uh, as I read that, I, I thought I can really identify with that, particularly as I get, I get older, you get adjusted to uh, all sorts of aids and helps. But the one thing that frustrates me is that my mind is, is going. And uh, the only hope that we have, really, is a redeemed body. One of these days, the Lord's going to give us a body that's equal to the, to the demands of our spirit, one that will function properly, and, and we're looking forward to that day. That's uh, one very relevant fact about the resurrection. Our destiny is fixed. Uh, God's going to give us the right kind of body, and we look forward to that, that time. But uh, there's another important fact about the resurrection that sometimes is overlooked, and that is its relevance for today, its meaning for you and me now, as, as we live in our homes, in our neighborhoods, our offices, our farms. Uh, the resurrection is not merely a theological fact. It's something that, that has to do with life today. And it's that principle that Paul spells out for us in Philippians 3. If you have Bibles with you, I'd like to encourage you to turn to that passage. Because this uh, passage, as perhaps no other section of, of Pauline writing, uh, is a systematic statement of Paul's philosophy of life. I, uh, I like to ask people occasionally what their philosophy of life is. I find it's a great way to, to uh, stimulate a conversation about spiritual things. And if I were to ask Paul what his philosophy of life is, this is, this is what he would, would tell me. Chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, when we read those words, it uh, makes us think that Paul is very much like the preachers we know. He's right at the midpoint of his message, and he says, finally, and then he goes on for 20 more minutes to elaborate. But uh, actually, the, the term that's translated finally here means the remainder, additionally. One thing more I want you to know. And uh, to Paul, this is the point of it all. Paul says, if I had to summarize my lifestyle in one phrase, this is it. Rejoice in the Lord. And it's particularly that clause, in the Lord, that he's concerned about. Because there are all sorts of things in which we could rejoice. But Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord. If we were to interview Paul and ask him about the things that make him happy, he might say something like this. If we said, Paul, uh, how about your financial position? Does that make you happy? And Paul would say, well, I don't really have any money right now. It's a bad year for tent making. Interest rates are high. Uh, we're sort of over-tented. Over and uh, Things are not really going well for me financially. No, money doesn't make me happy. As a matter of fact, I don't really have any money in the bank. And we'd say, Paul, how about, how about your marriage? How's your married life going? Well, it's not going too well. 
When I became a Christian, my life, my wife walked out and took the kids, and and that really hurt. I don't really have a relationship with my wife right now. And we'd say, well, how about your health, Paul? How's that going? Well, as you can see, I'm having trouble with my eyes, and, and right now I'm in jail, and the food isn't very good. And it's kind of tough from a physical standpoint. No, I can't really rejoice in my health. Well, what do you rejoice in, Paul? And he says, well, I rejoice in the Lord. That's the one fact of life. It's stable and secure. That's the non-terminating fact. He's just, he's just there. The Lord's there. And I rejoice in him. And that's what fulfills me and satisfies me and, and gives me peace. And that philosophy pervades all of Paul's writings. In fact, Paul says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me but it's a safeguard for you. Apparently, Paul had said this over and over again. As a matter of fact, in Philippians, Paul says, I like it, that fact of life so much, I'm going to say it again. And down in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And it's that principle of life that governed the apostle Paul. Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and that's the safest course for you as well. Well, our, our question is, how do we do that? How do we rejoice in Christ in the midst of, a, of an economy that's collapsing, marriages that are troubled, children that, that are a pressure, parents that are giving us a hard time? How, how can we rejoice in the Lord in circumstances like that? Well, the apostle tells us in the verses that follow. That's, I'll be over in a little while. It's all right. <laughs> in verse 2, the apostle says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. The first thing we have to do is look out for a particular group of people. And uh, strangely enough, these are religious people. They were folks that were following the Apostle Paul about and counteracting much of his teaching. And their philosophy of life was that it all depends upon you. You have to try harder. There are certain rules that you have to keep. You have to be in religious services every time the doors open. And, and there are certain religious activities that you have to be involved in. And you have to clench your fist and set your jaw. And you have to be tough and go for it. And try harder, and uh, then you'll be what, what God wants you to be. A friend of mine and I this past week were talking about some of Ayn Rand's books. I think I've read most of them myself, and he said that as a non-Christian growing up, uh, he had read all of them. And Rand's philosophy of life, as you well know, is that it all depends upon you. If you're going to make it in this life, you just got to be tough. And that's a very appealing philosophy of life to people in the world, but uh, we need to be aware of the fact that there are even Christians and religious leaders that are saying that same sort of thing. What pleases God is a kind of tooth-clenched determination, uh, a trying harder, and that's what will get you through this world, and that's what will make you godlike. That, that's what pleases God. But Paul says, no, that's not a safe course. Beware of people that tell you that sort of thing. 
It's not going to make you easier to live with in your marriage. It's not going to endear you to your mate. It just doesn't work. And as Paul tells us over and over again, all the determination in the world to be godlike is empty and futile. It just doesn't work. There has to be another way. And it's that way that Paul spells out in the verses that follow. By contrast, he says in verse 3, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. We put our confidence in him. And we put no confidence in the flesh. By flesh, he means our humanity, our basic humanity, all that we are apart from God. And there are many different manifestations of the flesh. There's the wicked flesh that acts in very immoral ways, and there's the religious flesh that simply tries to be religious by trying harder. Paul says that's still flesh. You can baptize it, you can chastise it, you can simonize it, but it's still flesh. And Paul says we don't put any confidence in it. We don't trust it. We don't trust ourselves. We glory in Christ Jesus. He's the source of our confidence and trust. And therefore, Paul says, we are the true circumcision. Now, we have to understand what Paul is talking about. Most of us are not Jews or we don't have a Jewish background, so we're not familiar with that term and its meaning to the Jew. To the Jew, it was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And it was a sign given to Abraham because Abraham stopped depending upon himself. He started counting on God instead of himself. Now, I don't know how you picture Abraham. I always thought of him as an Arab in a bathrobe. That's all I learned from Sunday school plays. But uh, as I've come to know a little bit more about the ancient world, I've come to see that he really was a, a kind of a tough old customer. He... If he lived today, he would be in the trucking business. He was a caravaneer. He carried goods from one part of the ancient world to the next, and he had a number of hired mercenary soldiers who rode shotgun for him on these trips, and he was a very, very successful, competent businessman. He had made it in the business world. He had succeeded. But there was one thing that he could not do. And it just frustrated him every day. He could not have a son. The one thing he wanted more than anything else in the world was a child to whom he could pass on all of these goods with which God had blessed him. God had richly blessed him. And he wanted to give all of that to his son, but he didn't have a son. And he couldn't have a son. And he and Sarah tried every possible way to have children, and they couldn't have children. And it didn't make any difference how tight he clenched his jaw, or how many times he tried, it just didn't work. And one day God took him out under the stars, and he said, Abraham, you're going to have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky and sand on the sea. And Abraham said, Lord, may Eliezer live a long time. Eliezer was sort of his administrative assistant, and he'd taken him into his family, and he loved this young man, and he'd already made up his mind he was going to give him all of his inheritance. But he wasn't related to Abraham and Sarah at all. And, but he thought he would be the heir. And God said, no, no, you and Sarah are going to have a son. And Abraham must have thought, but Lord, don't you understand Sarah's barren? She can't have children. She's past the time when she can have children. It's impossible for her to have children. We've tried and tried and tried. We can't have children. 
And God said, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. Just trust me. And Abraham breathed a great sigh of relief, and he said, Oh, I see, Lord, you're going to do it for me. I don't have to try harder. You're going to do it for me. And God gave the sign of circumcision to Abraham because Abraham got the point of life. He understood that what matters in this life is what God does for us, not what we do for God. God is not at all impressed by our trying harder or our being religious. God wants to give and provide and be everything that we need for life. And that's why Paul says we're the true circumcision. Even if we don't bear in our body the mark, the physical mark of circumcision, our hearts are circumcision because we're people who put no confidence in the flesh. We glory in Christ Jesus. We rejoice in him. Our confidence is derived from our relationship to him. Now Paul says if anyone could place confidence in the flesh, I certainly could, in verse 4. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In terms of my ancestry, he says, I come from sturdy stock, good people. I'm a true Jew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, a son of Hebrews. If you want to talk about circumcision in the flesh, I was circumcised on the eighth day, as all Jewish children were. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Benjaminite, that sturdy little tribe that identified itself with Judah when all the other tribes revolted. Paul says, in terms of my ancestry, my, my family background is impeccable. I could glory in my ancestry, just as we could, that we came across on the Mayflower or were native Idahoans or whatever. Paul says, I don't count on that. Furthermore, as to the law... In terms of his orthodoxy, I'm a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the conservatives of that day. They were the people who believed in the scriptures. If they lived today, they would be the people who are writing articles on inerrancy and who fully believe in the authority of the word of God. The Pharisees have received a lot of bad press because of their opposition to Jesus, but basically there were people that were committed to the Word of God and, and committed to obedience to it. They were the evangelicals of their day. And Paul says, if I wanted to point to my orthodoxy, my theological orthodoxy, my credentials are impeccable. I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. If you want to look at my religious activity, I uh, believe that God had called me to, to, uh, Avenge, uh, to, uh, to guard his name and to avenge injustice to his name. And I thought the church was in opposition to God and his program to bring, bring salvation to the earth. And so I persecuted it vigorously and relentlessly. And as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. In terms of morality, no one could, could point to any area of his life where he failed to measure up to the truth. Paul says, if I want to go back and review my life, my credentials, you, they're impeccable. But Paul says, I counted the whole thing as loss. Verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The word for rubbish here is actually the word for garbage. Paul says, that's the way I look at these these, uh, factors in my life. They add up to zero. They don't mean anything in God's eyes, and they haven't done anything in terms of of my own character. They produce nothing. It's like Gary Merkel going off to his office on Monday morning, putting on his green eye shade, rolling up his sleeves, getting out his calculator, and working furiously over that calculator all day. And at the end of the day, he punches the total button, and it comes out zero 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 point zero zero because all day he's been punching the zero button. And Paul says, that's the way it is. I take all of my assets and add them up, and they come out to a big, fat zero. They've done nothing for me in terms of my relationship to God. And my own godlikeness doesn't work. And this is a good time, then, to ask ourselves the question, what are we counting on? What am I counting on? If it's the fact that we're Bible-believing Christians, so was Paul. If we give to God's work, so did Paul. If we're disciplined, we get up in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, and have a quiet time, read the word, pray, so did Paul. Memorize the word, so did Paul. Discipling others, witnessing to others, so did Paul. And Paul says, when I add it up, if, I, if I'm thinking in terms of those things which give me strength and power in my life and influence in others' lives, it all adds up to zero. It produced absolutely nothing. Verse 7, Paul says, I have counted all these things as lost. That is, he's looking back to his conversion experience, the time on the road to Damascus when the Lord appeared to him and he realized for the first time in his life that he'd been living that life on an entirely wrong basis. He'd been counting on himself rather than, than on the risen Lord. And he said, at that point, I counted all these things as lost. And in verse 8, more than that, I keep on counting all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order to gain Christ and be found in him. You'll notice the connection of verses 8 and 9. I count all things as loss, he says, to gain Christ and be found in union with him. He's referring here to the initial act that placed him into relationship with Christ, his salvation, his his initial salvation, what we would call justification. And what Paul is saying in this verse is that that act was an act of faith. He simply believed God. He trusted God. He depended on the Lord Jesus for his salvation. He knew he couldn't save himself. And as he tells us over and over again in his books, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. And again, Paul says in Ephesians 2, it's not by works, it's by grace that we come into God's family. We have to count on him. I used to work for the YMCA when I was in school. I did all sorts of things for the Y. I even taught ballet once to a bunch of girls. Uh, The ballet teacher didn't show up, and so I 
ran them through their paces and and uh, ran athletic programs. And uh, one of the most interesting things I've ever done was direct a summer camp for children from West Dallas, which is an indigent uh, area, a lot of poverty-stricken families there living in tar paper shacks, and these little children just had had nothing, really, basically uneducated in many ways, and certainly in, in terms of their spiritual knowledge. They didn't know anything. And uh, I decided that one of the things that I would do at this, at this camp was uh, give them an opportunity every day to hear the gospel. And uh, I, I tried to uh, put the gospel in terms that they could understand by telling them little stories. And uh, the first thing we would do when we got together at this uh, campground was have a story time, and they'd all sit around. And one of the stories that I told every week was the story of Bruce the Moose. And uh, Bruce was a lonely moose who lived uh, way off up in Canada someplace, and he didn't like it because people were always shooting at him. And uh, he was very gregarious, but he didn't have any other uh, mooses around to associate with, and he was lonely most of his life. But one day he happened to be walking through a meadow and he saw a bunch of horses. And he decided that he would be a horse because horses cluster together and, uh, and nobody shoots at a horse, hopefully. And uh, so he decided he would be a horse. And so he goes running out into the middle of the meadow and immediately the horses recognize him as a moose and they drive him away. So Bruce decides that he has to do something to change his appearance so he will no longer look like a moose. So he knocks his antlers off and he rushes back into the meadow and immediately they recognize him as a moose and drive him away. And so he decides he'll learn to eat like a horse. And uh, all of his life he's been eating uh, lily pads and so he tries to eat grass and chokes it down. It's difficult at first, but he finally changes his uh, appetite so that he can eat eat. Uh, grass, and uh, now he thinks they'll accept him, but of course they drive him away, and the story goes on and on and on. The point of which is that you can't be a horse unless you're born a horse, and that was the point that I would make at the end. The only way to be a horse is to be born a horse, and I would explain in terms of our salvation that we may look like a Christian and act like a Christian and talk like a Christian and do the things that Christians do, but that what makes us Christian is a new birth, that God has to do something. He has to change us. We can't do it ourselves. There has to be a transformation that God himself brings about. There was a young man at that uh, particular conference, one of my counselors. In fact, he was the head counselor. His name was Henry Haswell. His father owned the biggest nursery in Dallas, Texas. And uh, he's very wealthy. He came from a very wealthy family, privileged young man. And Henry did not like what I was doing to those children. He uh, finally turned me in to the director, and they asked me to cool it. But uh, Henry and I had some interesting conversations from that point on about, about the gospel. Very much in opposition to the whole thing, because Henry's philosophy of life is that you can do it yourself. you got to be tough. Ten years after I left Texas, I got a letter from Henry Haswell. I thought, what in the world is Henry doing writing me? I tore the thing open. And the first line said, I just want you to know that I've been born a horse. <laughs> and I thought, aha, Henry wised up. He got smart. He got the point. And we can't save ourselves. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 9. I want to be found in him, in union with him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And here he's talking about the process that we would describe as sanctification. You have to trust Christ to get into the family, and you have to trust him to walk in that family. And Paul says, what I want to do now is get to know the Lord Jesus, put my roots down into him so I can know the power of his resurrection. That's what that's what the resurrection power of our Lord Jesus is for. It's designed to make us into different people, make us God-like people. If you look right across uh, the page, at least in my Bible, in Colossians 1.11, Paul prays that we may be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience with joy. All of our Lord Jesus' resurrection power is given to us to make us more patient, more courageous, more thoughtful, more thankful, more, more joyful. And so we not only need the Lord Jesus for salvation initially, we need him for all of life and his power. And Paul says that comes by being conformed to his death. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings by being conformed to his death. And we're back here to square one. What Paul is saying is that we just need to die to all of our ambition, to all of our strength, to all that we're relying upon, put it to death. That's what it means to be conformed to his death. The Lord Jesus himself gave up everything that a man would normally count upon when he went to the cross. And Paul says, that's what I do. That's how I'm getting to know him. That's how it's possible for me to express more and more of the life of God because I'm learning increasingly to put to death more and more of my own energy and strength and self-life and all of those things that I formerly counted upon, my activity, my orthodoxy, my, my beliefs. I'm putting all those aside, and I'm relying upon the Lord Jesus in his life. And Paul says, it's all in order that I may attain to the resurrection from among the dead. And we say, what's this? I, I knew there was something wrong with this message. Paul is saying here, if, if, we, if we trust the Lord in the right way, then maybe we'll be raised from the dead. I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. But that's not what Paul is talking about at all. Because he's not here referring to the resurrection of the body. He's using the term resurrection in a metaphoric or a symbolic sense. You know that because in the very next verse he says, not that I have already obtained it. He would never say that if he were thinking of the resurrection of the, of the body because it's obvious that his body had not been raised. It's as though I would stand here and say, now what I want to do is attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now I haven't attained to it yet. I don't have my redeemed body yet. And you would all say, you can say that again. See, it's obvious that Paul has not yet attained to the resurrection. And furthermore, the term that Paul uses here, the resurrection from the dead, is a term that's found nowhere else in the New Testament. It literally is, a, is an out-resurrection, a standing up out of. 
And what Paul is saying is that he wants to so live his life, he wants to walk in confidence in God, so that whatever situation he's in, whatever circumstance, it doesn't matter what kind of stress or pressure he's experiencing, he'll be a standout among those that are dead. He'll live always on the basis of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It's as though you were to see someone tomorrow morning jogging in a cemetery. And you say, oh boy, now that is living. That is really living. All those dead people there, and there's a man out jogging. You may have heard the story of the man who was buried in his gold Cadillac, and as he went down into the grave, somebody said, man, that's living. And that's the way the world looks at life. But Paul looks at it entirely different. He says, I want to be a standout among those that are dead, those that are impotent in terms of their personal lives, those who have habits that dominate them, those who can't cope with their family problems and their relationships with, with people around them. Those are the dead. I want to stand out among those. I want to be different. I want to, in every circumstance, count on the life of Jesus Christ, his powerful resurrection life, so that I can always be what God intends me to be in every circumstance, displaying the character of God. But notice Paul says in verse 12 that he's not there yet. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Isn't that good to know? That even the Apostle Paul was not there yet. Marlene Matthias was so delighted last week when she found out that Carolyn and I sometimes have fusses. That just delighted her. Made her day. She heard a tape that I did for some kids over at Ecola Hall, and, and I just commented on some argument I'd had with Carolyn, and she was just so excited. She says, the Lord can forgive Dave Roper, he can forgive me, and that was just made her day. And it's so good that when we look at the Apostles, Paul's life. He says, I'm not there yet. There are times that I give way to anxiety and I get afraid and, and there are times that I lose my temper and, and I'm cross with people and, and I yell at, at someone who's offended me or I get resentful or bitter or I have lustful thoughts. Paul says, I understand. I understand. I'm not there yet. But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. The great thing to know is that the Lord has already apprehended us. He's already laid hold of us. It's his desire. It's, you know, he wants the very best for you even more than, than you want it. You've already been laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And Paul says, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, the thing for which Christ laid hold of me. But one thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. The uh, word that's translated press on in verse 14 is the same term that's translated persecutor in verse 6. Dogged, relentless pursuit of this thing. I press on toward the goal. What's the goal? Well, the goal is the principle which Paul established in this in his prior argument that I may in every circumstance learn to count upon the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, that's maturity. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. Perfection is not perfection in the sense that we never fail. 
Maturity is always, in every circumstance, laying hold of Christ. As many as are perfect have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. In other words, we don't have to worry about unknown sin. God will reveal it to us. We simply have to account for what we know, and as God reveals the truth to us, we need to obey it. And in the meantime, Paul says, we're pressing on toward the goal. I forget what lies behind, and I reach forward to what lies ahead. I don't care how anybody else is running. That's not my concern. I'm not uh, preoccupied with my failures in the past. They don't make any difference. They're all forgiven. All I do is focus on one thing, this one thing I do. I make this my goal, to lay hold of Christ in every circumstance. When a pressure comes, when we're tempted to give way to irritation or anger, when we feel restless and we want to pop a pill or go pop someone or, or whatever our normal response might be, to go run to the volume or, or whatever resource we've been counting on, we turn to the Lord and we lay hold of him and we find that he is the one who's adequate for any circumstance. And Paul says, that's what I pursue with all my strength, the dogged, relentless pursuit of Christ and all that he is. When I was in high school, I uh, was permitted one year to go what, uh, to what is called the Border Olympics, which was a big uh, high school track meet in Laredo, Texas. And uh, I was so looking forward to that event. And uh, when I got there, there were so many kids running, they, they ran, uh, had to run a number of heats in order to, to uh, work the list down to just a few qualifiers. And one of the heats I was running in, there was a fellow from a little Texas cow town who was in the lane right to the right of me, and since we were running at a staggered start, he was right in front of me, and he was a tall, skinny kid. He looked sort of like a stork. And he didn't even have spiked uh, track shoes. He had an old pair of cross-country shoes without spikes and a pair of men's brown dress socks pulled up to his knees. And, a, and he was running in a set of cutoffs. And he had his schedule, schedule of all the events, rolled up, sticking out of his hip pocket. And it was sticking up about six inches above his pocket. And I was just transfixed. I couldn't keep my eyes off this kid. And I think I finished about dead last. In that heat, I don't remember, but what, what, what I think of is that, that that young man completely preoccupied me. I couldn't get my eyes off it. I'd never seen anything like it in my whole life. And I kept thinking, what a disaster if, if he beats me. I didn't keep my eye on the goal, see. I let something else preoccupy me. And we're living in a time when there are all sorts of things that can keep our eyes off the goal, the economy, what's happening politically, morally, all around us, what's happening in your family, the pressures and stresses of your life, and the temptation is to get your eyes on everything else except on the goal. The goal, Paul says, is to face every circumstance in confidence and in trust and in dependence upon the life of our risen Lord. So don't let anybody take your eyes off that goal. 